When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together, we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott. And Ben, we are joined, as always, with our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Noel Brown, nicknames TBA, although... By um, just as an aside, Scott, Mm -hmm. uh, we did have a really interesting conversation with Dylan, who is rereading some history of uh, of Abraham Lincoln. Oh, yeah, that's right. And it inspired him to make some some very specific uh, nickname propositions and references to us. Yeah, what uh, what brought that about? Now we had uh, we had given him a nickname in a previous episode, a couple of I guess a couple of episodes ago. Yeah, that he somehow. Oh no, I know what it was. I, I, I've got it now. <laughs> this is kind of funny. I, yeah. The power was out one night when I had to approve one of our episodes, and I told him that I was. <laughs> it was a late late night email that I had to send because I was approving this thing until after midnight some night. But the power had gone out earlier in the night at our house, so I had a candle. There oh, by the laptop, right. you know, yeah. reviewing this file. And I said, I kind of feel like, you know, this must be how Abraham Lincoln approved his podcast back in the day, you know, by candlelight in the log cabin. And uh, he thought that was pretty funny, but he added his uh, his own little spin on it and gave us some uh, Lincoln-associated nicknames. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I we, we complimented him on these because his history references were amazing. And he said that he was – actually, I'll just read this part from him. Oh, sure. Uh, so he said – uh, yeah, your history references are great and pretty funny. And Dylan said, thanks, guys. I've just been rereading Team of Rivals and saw an opportunity for references, much like Sam and P. Chase saw an opportunity to introduce the nation's first paper currency during his time as Lincoln's Secretary of Treasury. Oh, nice fact drop in there. This guy is, like, absorbing knowledge at, a, at an insane rate. <laughs> it makes me scared of him. You know... I feel like if he ever became a brainiac overlord of some sort, yeah. he'd be really cool about it. I think you're probably right. He would be such a laid-back, easy-going dictator. Agreed. 
So Dylan for president. <laughs> oh, man, don't say that. <laughs> oh, okay, man. Okay, so maybe we should get into uh, to get into today's topic. How about that? That's right. Uh, we are uh, putting our sides aside and jumping straight to the uh, the topic for the day. And this one is this one has a little bit of a personal slant for me. Really, a personal interest. What, what do you mean? Well, as as you know, Scott, I live in in. Uh, it sounds bad when I say it this way, but hear me out. I live in an abandoned car factory oh that's Actually, right i live i live in uh what we call the ford factory it's not abandoned now they turned it into you know apartments <laughs> you're not just like uh you're camping out in a corner <laughs> not just like squatting under a 67 hood or something yeah, that's right i forgot so two historic buildings side by side you live in one you work in one mm-hmm. yeah and so in the one that you were in what did they make there i think it was model a's is that right yeah yeah model yeah. a's ford uh, model, model a's. t's too oh Ma- model t's came mm-hmm. out of there yeah well it was just so we're right by a series a, a series of train tracks, right? Yeah. Now they have been converted to like a walking path, but the train tracks used to run between these two buildings. Yeah. And the buildings were built uh, alongside the tracks so that they could easily transport um, large industrial items like you know appliances, or in my case, automobiles. Yeah. Yeah. Worked out perfect. And it made me think because. It made me think back to some of the discussions we had had before about how difficult it is to start a car company, right? Mm-hmm. And the the enormous cost in terms of um, in in terms of money, but also in terms of time that are involved in this sort of endeavor. And you, you know, having having a, a storied history in Detroit, in Michigan, you know just how big these things are. And a lot of people who have never seen an automotive factory have no idea about just the sheer scale these things are huge yeah we're talking about millions of square feet of space of of, of floor space in these mm-hmm. things and they they occupy hundreds of acres of property so they're they're really really enormous and the the thing is uh, you know in their heyday in their prime mm-hmm. these are these are fine-tuned machines you know they they crank out the product you know the pe- of course it's the people making it all happen but uh, and the machines as well you know all of it working together in harmony to make everything work just right and it's 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 a, again a fine-tuned machine mm-hmm. when the the Industry goes away when the when the uh, the company moves out when the the place becomes empty. Right. Uh, if it's not immediately handed over to somebody else to become you know some new um, you know I guess uh, money making venture for them. Sure. Um, oftentimes they become derelict very fast. It, it it doesn't take long before you know people come in to take out the metal you know to scrap the metal. Right. Uh, they start breaking the windows. They start living. Uh, living in there, they start squatting in there when they're yeah. not supposed to yeah, be yeah, there. Yeah. Unlike you, you you were supposed to be where you I, are. But well, I do. I I am paying somebody rent. I hope they own the place. <laughs> well, well, that counts. Yeah, uh, uh, but but yeah, I mean, like there's fires. There's you know, um, you know, outside there. Typically, it's you know, just kind of run down. You know, the course of the landscape and everything goes to right. hell, and um, they just look really bad. Almost immediately. It doesn't take more than about a year for a factory to start to look like it's an abandoned factory. And it is abandoned, but to start looking like it's abandoned. Yeah. And so this uh, this all brings us to our topic today, which is abandoned car factories. What happens when these giants of industry close shop and you know shut the doors, soap up the windows? And this will also be of interest to 
urban explorers. We got a lot of urban explorers who listen to car stuff and other how stuff works podcast. And one of these buildings might be near you. There's a good chance because they're all around the world, the ones mm-hmm. we're going to talk about today. So uh, just just so you're aware, we're following along with a list that came from Jalopnik. And we're going to add a couple maybe at the end here, mm-hmm. you know, some that we have uh, some experience with, I guess, maybe. But uh, these are the 10 most unbelievable abandoned car factories, according to Jalopnik's or, or Jalopnik listeners or readers, I should say, rather, um, because they wrote in with these suggestions. So, so here's the, the thing with this, though, Ben, is a lot of these have links that you can follow. Yeah. Uh, they go to other articles that have just a wealth of information and photos and everything. So I encourage you, if you want to, follow along with this list from Jalopnik or at least check it out after this podcast. Yeah. And uh, and look at some of these links. Look at some of the photos of the things that we'll describe. We'll just give you kind of a, a rundown of the top ten that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, see if you agree. Maybe add some of your own. Think about you know factories in your area that you might also add to this list. Mm-hmm. Uh, car factories in particular. Right. Have to be car factories. And... Um, you know, it's just fascinating to see what happens and how quickly it happens. And just, you know, the uh, the idea that, you know, the locals all have an idea of what happened there and, and you know, that's prime, but now it's gone. The, you know, right. the, the town kind of dried up or whatever. So they all got their own story. Let's start with number 10, which is the DeLorean plant in Dunmurray, Ireland. And this guy, John DeLorean, keeps showing up in podcasts lately. Have you noticed that? <laughs> yes, I have. He was here last week, too. Yeah, strange. Uh, so... This, as Scott said, is in Dunmurray, Ireland. We are talking about the factory responsible for the manufacture of one of the easily top five most iconic cars in film. Yeah. The DMC-12, the mm-hmm. DeLorean, uh, the sports car that DeLorean built, and that uh, that started to happen. Remember, he was uh, he had a long history with what Packard and then General Motors, and then yep. went off to do his own thing. Um, and by 1975, he had founded something called the DeLorean Motor Company. And again, he was I think he was he was headquartered in Michigan, but this factory, the place that he was going to build this, was in Ireland. And uh, that's kind of a rarity too, by the way. There's not a lot of cars manufactured in Ireland. DeLorean was one of them. Right. There's another one I posted recently on St. Patrick's Day. Um, there's a car. There's actually a car built there called the Shamrock. Uh, I find unusual, but um, again, the DeLorean Motor Company was around from 1975 until about 1982 when it went bankrupt. Uh, we did a podcast, an entire podcast on DeLorean, yes. and that was back in February of 2010. I think there was a, a rerun a little bit later on that you can catch as well. Uh, but go back to February 2010 to hear a full podcast on all, you know, it was all about John DeLorean and his car and his dream. And uh, the, I guess this this factory is really something else to see. But the, the main part of this factory that you want to check out if you're there is the track. There's an abandoned test track that uh, that looks pretty haunted as a matter of fact it looks a little spooky yeah yeah there's uh and there there are different things that are i guess you'd say ruins or vestiges of the factory's heyday um the test track is by far you know the most visible noticeable thing and you can get there i mean you can get there we're not going to comment on the legality oh yeah we're certainly not going to advocate breaking the law. Well, as the article says, you got to jump many fences to see this yeah. test track. Uh, but if you happen to see it, you'll also see that there's an alloy wheel factory on part of the property and uh, that, um, that the, you can still find moldings and, and cast-off components, but, you know, 
they've fallen victim to the elements, right? Yeah, and we know what happened to the machines. And we know what happened to the machines. And if and you want to find out, check out that podcast. Yep, you will have to check it out. Uh, shameless plug, com. Here's one of the things I think is most interesting about the DeLorean plant. Apparently, it had separate entrances for Catholic and Protestant workers. Did you read that? Yeah, I didn't look for photos of it. You know, I I, I read about it, but I didn't, you know, seek out and, and see if I could, you know, actually spot, you know, where the two two doors were side by side. But there's a similar thing in, uh, in uh, I guess, Mason history, right? Or not Mason history. What do you want to call it? Mason uh, culture. Masonry. Masonry, Mason culture, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, in that um, they have separate doors oftentimes for Scottish Rite bodies and York Rite bodies. And mm. they're labeled as such. So, you know, this, this separate door idea is not entirely new, but it's interesting that it was there at the factory. So check it out if you have a chance. Send us some pictures. Uh, I don't know if that test track is drivable, but you could probably walk on it. <laughs> Maybe walk on it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, our next thing is, so we're talking about the size. This will help us underline the enormity of these things. They are, in many in many ways, in many instances, Car factories are as large as small towns. Yeah, and we're going to talk about Buick City. And now this is Buick City is in Flint, Michigan, or it was in Flint, Michigan, and um, this is t- this is on 235 acres. And of course, you know this is a huge auto manufacturing facility or complex, I should say. It was owned by General Motors in Flint, Michigan, from 1904 until about 2010, when they finally completely closed it off. Of course, it was used for Buick production. I mean, the term Buick City wasn't really coined until about 1985. Um, the final cars that were built there were the Pontiac Bonneville and the Buick LeSabre. Uh, but there were a, there's a wide range of vehicles that were built there over that, you know, the many, many decades that it was open. Um, one of the uh, This is one of the largest factories in the world at one time. So there were 24 separate buildings that were on this, you know, 235-acre plot of land. And until 1928, I think it was, when the Rouge River plant opened up, but, you know, Ford Rouge River plant, um, it was still, it was the largest factory or automobile factory of its kind, mm-hmm. of its time. Yeah, yeah. And people, people noticed in the area, Scott had earlier mentioned uh, how all the locals will have, in many cases, a very personal relationship with these, with these buildings, with these structures and these sites. And in this area of mid Michigan, uh, uh, a lot of people see the closure of the GM or of Buick City as this catalyst or this turning point, this tipping point in the history of the area. Yeah, well, so many people were employed by this factory. I mean, I mean, generations of families have had been, you know, workers at this factory from the you know the very beginning in some cases. So uh, when something like that dries up, of course, it's going to have an impact on the city that you know it, it surrounds this thing uh, that is built up because of this thing, really. Um, so the, the good news is, I guess, in this case, you know, now it's just this great big. Uh, this isn't good news, but it's <laughs> it's it's surrounded by barbed wire and fence, and it's a big flat piece of concrete now. You know, they completely knocked it down. The, you know, the whole 200 acre, 200 plus acres. Uh, but the American Cast Iron Pipe Company has announced plans to build a 200,000 square foot facility on the same property. So I hope that plan goes through it, you know, as they as they hope it will, as they've, they've drawn it out, because uh, Flint could definitely use some revitalization at this point. Uh, so moving on to number eight on the list is the Fisher Body Plant in Detroit, Michigan. And uh, this is this is a really interesting one, Ben, because... Um, well, they're all really interesting, but this one in particular, because this one has a long history with a lot of different companies. It's not just uh, General Motors, as you might think. Um, so the Fisher Body Plant in 
Detroit. There's a specific one in Detroit that we're talking about is the one on Piquette Avenue, um, on, on St. Antoine and Piquette. And this is an Albert Kahn designed building. Now, it was b- built in, uh, or I think it was around 1919, but Albert Kahn is an American industrial architect and he was said to be the, uh, like the, the premier architect of the time, the, uh, the, the guy that you wanted to design your building. He's, he's often called the architect of Detroit. So he has his hand in a lot of the buildings that we'll talk about today on this list. Um, and so this building that, you know, was built in 1919 is just one of many buildings that they had, that Fisher Body had owned. At one point they owned 40 buildings with a total of 3.7 million square feet of floor space. So this is kind of like the final remaining piece in that, in that puzzle. Um, this, this, uh, this building, of course, is a, it's, well, this, this company, I should say, Fisher Body, is a coach building company. So it dates all the way back to, you know, wooden bodies on cars. Right, right. Back when you would, Essentially, just buy an engine and maybe a chassis. Yeah, yeah, and then have a custom body added onto that. Now, it wasn't just you know individuals that were coming to them for bodies; it was also manufacturers. And I said it wasn't just General Motors as well, because we associate this typically with General Motors cars. But um, you know that that iconic Body by Fisher logo, and a lot of people know that logo. That was actually applied to GM door sills until about the mid 1990s. So that hung on a long, long time. But the companies that came to them over the years, there were there were companies that were like Abbott and Buick and Cadillac and Chalmers and Ford and Hudson, uh, Studebaker, Regal. There's, you know, there's a long, long list. And it's only a couple of the many, many companies that would come to them for, for body work. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a... Um, it's just an, again, it's an iconic building. It is a, uh, it's a piece of history. It's something that a lot of people would like to see, you know, uh, remain standing or used in some way. But the problem is, it's in a not so great part of Detroit right now, and it's, it's definitely falling apart. It's covered with graffiti. The windows are all broken out. You can look at uh, the photo online. I think it's actually um, a, uh, a street view that you can get online, so you can kind of go all the way around the building and take a look at, you know, what's left around it. It looks like a lot of vacant property around it as well. So, uh, so bad news for the Fisher body plant, but hopefully it'll turn into something good. And we know what you are thinking, ladies and gentlemen, possibly. Uh, Scott and I are using our amazing podcast telepathy powers to figure out that some of you are going, oh man, this is going to be depressing and it's going to be so heavy on Michigan. Just wait, because we're going to take a break for a word from our sponsors and then we're traveling to New York. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. 
We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good. And I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. And Ben, you said we were going to take a trip to New York for number seven on our list. Is that right? Yes, sir. That is correct. Uh, and they had a slight mention earlier when we were talking about Fisher. We are looking at the Studebaker building in New York City. Yeah. Now, the current owner of this is Columbia University. And uh, here, here's the thing with this. This is located at 615 West 131st Street between Broadway and 12th Avenue. And this is the former Studebaker Automobile finishing plant, which, uh, you know, they have this giant freight elevator within mm-hmm. this property you'll see, uh, was constructed in 1923 as brick construction with white porcelain trim, which I find really cool. It's six stories tall, so it's a big building. Again, take a look at the photos and you'll see this white porcelain trim on the outside top edges and, and along, looks like, uh, maybe, I don't know if that's an elevator shaft or if that is a, uh, a, a smokestack, but uh, really, really cool. And I think you can even see a bit of a logo that they used, yeah. uh, a blue logo that's still visible near the top corner of the building uh, from back in like the 19, you know, 1920s, 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, really cool building. It's a real solid building, and it was sold in 1937, I think, to the Borden Milk Company, which used it as a milk processing plant for a while. And then it became uh, a storage space, essentially, for... Uh, the American Museum of Natural History, then it had been offices, a couple of small manufacturing facilities, and even at one time, a doll company. A doll company. That's a strange move, huh? Now, I mean, I guess they need a lot of space, but you know, at the time in, in, in this thing's life, I, of course, I'd love to see it when they're making product, you know, and, and then one of the photos here is them making, uh, you know, the U.S. Postal Service Jeeps. Uh, you know, right. the, the real boxy ones, the blue and, and white ones. Mm-hmm. Um, really cool assembly line shot there. 
But I think the time that I would have liked to have seen this the most outside of the, the production would have been when they were the American Museum of Natural History storage facility. Can yeah. You, can you imagine what they, what they would put in something like that? I'm really, always so curious. That would be really neat to walk around and just see what they what they stuff out of the way, you know, when it's not on display. It's like the most interesting episode of Hoarders ever. Also pretty spooky, right? Wouldn't it yeah. be spooky yeah, to yeah. see that? Yeah. So um, I think what I think it's now back to office spaces again because somewhere in the 1980s someone bought the building. So um, mm-hmm. oh, and one other thing uh, we should mention here, and this is not in New York, but it's kind of a tangentially related thing, and they have a link to it that I followed, and I've seen this before. Um, there's something called. This is Studebaker related, by the way. Okay. Um, there's something called Bendix Park. Now it's spelled B-E-N-D-I-X, and uh, you know, as in the auto parts manufacturer, Bendix Woods. And this is actually in. Uh, it's not in New York again. It's in New Carlisle, Indiana, but near it's near the Studebaker test track. And if you look at the aerial photos of that area, you'll see the test track, and yeah. then just off to the side, you're going to find an area called again Bendix Park that has. 5,000 trees that spell out the word Studebaker that you can read from above. So if you're flying overhead, you can see this. And they've restored it recently. For a while, it was kind of, you know, a few trees had died out and it didn't quite spell out the full word. You know, there were were missing parts of the letters. Yeah. They've restored it so that now it clearly clearly reads Studebaker once again. But a really, really cool thing to to check out, you know, the aerial photos or Google Earth or whatever you want to do. But, again, that's New Carlisle, Indiana. You can spot it online pretty Mm -hmm. easy. Uh, The next one on the list is going all the way to Italy. We're going international, Ben. We're going international. We finally we finally made it, Scott. We are traveling, in fact, to the Alfa Romeo Portello plant in Milano. Yeah, this one was opened in 1908, and it was an 86,111-square-foot factory. And it was around until about 2004 when it was finally demolished. But the, but the real story here, Ben, is the photographs that we saw before it was demolished. Uh, the, the, the factory workers that left there, uh, whenever they walked out finally, whenever it was the, you know, the final, final straw for this, this factory, they left a mess behind. Um, the bulldo- and the bulldozers ended up just kind of covering it all up. We'll never know what was really lost here outside of what we could see in those photos. Um, no one went in to save all the stuff that was there. There were, there were cars that were unbuilt there. Yeah. There were usable machines, you know, usable factory machines that were still there. There were half-finished prototypes that were still on the property. Of course, lots of papers and things that have you know been stored in offices for who knows what. I mean, it could have been future product. It could have been anything, really. It could have been nothing. could have been something. But, again, we'll just never know. We'll never know what was lost in this situation. Yeah, fortunately. Um, yeah, and I think um, it's now, it's now you know, because it's been raised and, you know, mm-hmm. they, uh, they made – uh, something new on the property. So now I think it's like a, a residential and commercial property or, you know, something like a mixed-use area. Uh, but, again, that original factory is gone. And there's some great photographs of, of what it was like then. And you just can't believe the stuff. And they're overturned prototypes in the in the factory. Yeah, just, just laying there. Yeah, laying there underneath, a, you know, looks like an inch of dust. Uh, just grime and stuff thrown everywhere, packing materials. It's, it's really a shame to see the way they left the factory behind like that. But, um, again, lost to history. And while we are in Europe, let's make our way. Uh, let's make our way over to Birmingham, England, the site of the Longbridge plant. Yeah, sometimes called the Longbridge MG Rover factory, and uh, this one is still there. You can still go check this one out. Uh, but in this factory, this is. Uh, <laughs> they said that when this factory shut down, it was almost like it killed the British car industry itself because there were a lot of stuff made there. There was the the Austins. Nash Metropolitans, mm-hmm. uh, British Leland products, and finally the MG Rover. I think uh, Morris cars were built there. 
Uh, just a lot of product came out of the Longbridge plant in Birmingham, England. And there's a there's really controversial issue with this because one thing that surprised a lot of people was that at the time of its closure, the Longbridge plant was incredibly outdated. Mm-hmm. They had uh, they had stuff that their assembly line was probably modern in the 1950s, maybe. And they still used a drop-in to put the body and powertrain together. Uh, the modernization and investment that would have hap- had to happen to the plant was apparently something that the government who owned the plant was not not very interested in. Yeah, I think I read a note that said they were more the, – the emphasis was more on getting people – Employed there, they're trying to work on getting people in and, and having them work rather than updating the facility. And you got to have kind of a good balance of this, right? You have to you have to spend money on the the facility itself as well as the people inside. And now I understand the thought process behind both, but there has to be kind of a happy mix here. Uh, you know, something that uh, allows them to keep up with the Joneses, maybe, and the Joneses being uh, other car producing countries, really. Yeah. Is that yeah. is that a good way to put that? I don't know if that's a, that's a fair way to put that really. Well, but, it's it's but a tricky balance. It, yeah, it is. I mean, the task was, you know, to 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 get this building up to spec so that, you know, it was a little bit more modern uh, as well as employ, you know, uh, as many people as they possibly could, you know, because it's good for the economy, local economy, but um I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm digging a little too deep on this one. We should probably just let it go. But, um, <laughs> but but the idea was that you know either way they left a lot of unfinished cars behind and it was way outdated and uh, it's a sad day when this one closed down. Yes. And Scott, remember how earlier earlier we said you know this wasn't going to be all Michigan. It's still going to be a, a lot of Michigan. Well, that's because there are just so many. I mean, right. I guess per capita, there's so many. There's so many. Uh, so many factories there, and one of these, the, the Packard plant in Detroit, Michigan. Oh my gosh, Ben! This is uh, just continually bad news out of the Packard plant. Really, right? There, there are moments. There are moments where you get just a little bit of hope, but then it's dashed. So this is a plant that was opened in 1911. I think the the building, the the the, uh, the construction of this started a few years prior to that. It's a huge facility. Again, three and a half million square feet. And this is all one property, um, distinguished, I guess, by this main bridge that goes across between uh, between factory buildings for the product to travel between them. Um, just it has been abused over the years. I don't know officially when this thing shut down. I don't remember exactly the the day, uh, but I will tell you that you know if over the the past um, I don't know couple decades, several decades. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was there, it was already abandoned. Yeah, um, it, it's fallen prey to you know metal scrappers and uh, people. I I'm one who did this. I played paintball there because there was a, a company that had set up paintball. Um, operation, I guess. That in, sounds pretty fun. In the main offices. It was a lot of fun, but now looking back, and uh, I don't know. I, do you I feel, feel like you were dancing on a grave? I don't know. I don't know how to feel about it because uh, it was it's disrespectful. Yeah, but I mean, I but, but look where it is now. It's not any better now 22 years later. Um, so this was the mid-1990s when I'm playing paintball in there. Yeah. Um, but urban explorers, photographers, of course, um, just crazy stuff happens here. If you want to see some crazy... I'm going to say it, crazy-ass stuff, Ben, happens at this plant. <laughs> Did you know that there was an escaped tiger that was there in 2015? 
No, for how yeah, long? For just for a day, but oh, a, okay. uh, a British photographer had set up this this photo shoot there because it's a you know like an urban ruin area, right? Right. Very very popular with photographers. So uh, this guy sets up this tiger, the shoot with a tiger, a Siberian tiger, and I guess there were like naked models on site and everything. It was kind of a crazy shoot, right? Yeah. And this tiger escapes. Gets, it gets onto the fourth floor staircase of one of these buildings, and they don't know what to do. So they call on this guy. There's a story in a, in a local paper, I think, from um, from this guy in 2015 who was called by a friend, and he said, hey, do you know anything about these? Can you can you somehow – I don't know if he's an animal handler or what, but they called him. And he said he had, he had no tools with him. He had a weed whacker and a tarp, and he came over and they caught this tiger. Now, can you believe that? Yeah. It's crazy. That's insane. I'm it's, glad the tiger's okay. There, there fo- there's video of this <laughs> happening. It's not like it's some tall tale. It really happened. There's a tiger in the Packard factory in 2015. Um, in 20, uh, 2009, uh, there was a dump truck that was famously pushed out of a fourth floor uh, uh, window, and yeah. that's on video. It's really cool to watch, but again, vandals. That's vandals. You know. I don't know, man. Maybe the dump truck deserved it. Uh, <laughs> come on. This is, it, was, it was, I mean, again... The mystery is, like, how did it get on the fourth floor to begin right. with? Because it's a full-size dump truck. But yeah. to watch it plummet out of the fourth floor, it's impressive and it's it's kind of fun. But, again, it, it they shouldn't have done it. They weren't allowed to be on the property. A couple things we do have to emphasize okay. about this. All right. This is the largest abandoned factory of its kind. Mm-hmm. I think you mentioned that 3.5 million square feet, yeah. 35 acres. And what's weird about this is – in some ways, and this is a little abstract here, so go with me. If, mm-hmm. uh, go with me and then keep me in check if I'm, if I'm getting too weird with it. In some ways, this factory kind of continued after it closed, but in a, in a very strange way because once it was liquidated, the um, pre-war designs and the tooling were sold to other parties around the world yeah. behind the Iron Curtain and stuff. So um, – in Russia, they were building Packard clones using the same stuff. They were so it's almost like they just moved the factory or pieces of it, yeah. and they were under the uh, Zill and Zim nameplates. And these designs lasted well into the seventies. So I guess what we're getting at then is that this is like the skeleton of the of the company. Really, it's not. Uh, it's not so much that we're desecrating the. Uh, the Packard name because that that really had gone away with the machines and the right. product and the uh, yeah. all the uh, all the other materials. This is more like just this is like what's left behind that should have probably been knocked down a long time ago, uh, but hasn't been. In fact, Ben, one last quick thing about this: how yeah. crazy this place yeah, is. Yeah. And honestly, this is the tip of the iceberg. The fire department doesn't show up to fires that are lit on that property anymore. There was a story many years ago. Now I'm going to say four or five years ago that they were so frequently called to the um, to the Packard plant in Detroit that, you know, for a fire, you know, somewhere in the factory property that they eventually decided that they were wasting too much time with fires on this property and they could just burn themselves out. So they don't even bother showing up anymore to the fires. That's how, do you, how do you like that? That's crazy. This place is, this place is enormous. You've got to see it in order to believe it. And it was sold in 2013 to a, I think it's a Texan doctor who bought it for like six million bucks. Wow. And he was supposed to pay the back taxes. I don't think he ever did pay the back taxes. Um, so I don't know what's going on with it. But again, it's a crazy place. A lot of really weird stuff happens there. And we're going to get even weirder after a word from our sponsors. And we're 
back. We are still staying in Michigan for now. Uh, <laughs> we are going to Highland Park Ford Plant. Yeah, this is the last one on our list from Michigan, and the, the top two are elsewhere. But um, this is a Ford factory. Now, this is actually the, the well, this is the first Model T production facility. So imagine this. This is the, where the first assembly line uh, was introduced, you know, where the, uh, where the minimum wage was introduced. Right, where the minimum wage is introduced, where... Uh, our favorite madman savant himself, Henry Ford, uh, plays a crucial role in the invention of what we recognize as the weekend. Yeah. And this is one of the hearts of American history. Now, thankfully, this place was put on the National Historic Register or for, you know, being a National Historic Landmark in 1978. So it's been protected ever since. I think there's always kind of that danger that the property is going to be sold or, or you know, that the factory is going to be, uh, you know, raised in some way. Uh, but or, or at least, you know, most of it, because it's a pretty big building. It's a huge factory. Again, it's another Albert Kahn design. Uh, we've mentioned him many times. This is built around 1910. And if you're driving down Woodward Avenue in Michigan sometime, you can see this place. Uh, it's, I think it's being used for storage right now. It's, um, uh, you can see the, uh, the boxes piled up in the windows and, um, you can look, you can find, you know, the doorways that you used to see those old, you know, the grainy film footage of, you know, the Model T's rolling out one by one by one, you know, super fast. Yeah. Um, you can see those doors in place. You can peek in through holes in the doors that, you know, well, you can see the remnants of the first assembly line there. It's really remarkable. It's an interesting building. Um, I hope it never goes away, but I also hope they do something with it because it's falling in, uh, falling into disrepair. Uh, over the last, I'd say, 20 years, maybe. I've, I've been there several times. Nearby or right next door, there's a place called the Model T Plaza, which is just a strip mall. But um, but if you want to see the factory itself, you can still go down there and see that and read the historic mark and uh, plaque, rather, and uh, and you know look around for those doors that I mentioned. It's, it's just a neat place. Yeah, but it's not the weirdest. Not the weirdest and not the weirdest uh, by Ford as well. Yeah, right. Uh, so let's stay with Ford, but let's go to Brazil. In Santarém, Brazil, Fordlandia was built by Henry himself with the idea that, as we've mentioned before on this show, uh, with the idea that he could uh, sort of integrate rubber production and own his own rubber plantation and his own community. So that's the, the strange part about this is this is in a, this is in the rainforest, right? Yeah, and, and it's a whole city. It's a whole city, and uh, it was built up with the idea that this was going to be uh, again the, the rubber facility that would that supply the rubber for his product, um, but it was also going to be a place where people could live, people could go to school, people could have you know their own hospital, they could have their own church, they could have whatever they wanted. Everything was going to be self-contained in this community, and it was going to be run by Henry Ford. They also were required to live according to his very strict, hyper-idealized version of what good American life is. Almost Puritan, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yeah, in, almost Puritan. I mean, no sure. dancing, no music, that kind of thing. So, right. uh, yeah, he had some very strict rules if you were going to live in Fordlandia. I think they could have ice cream. <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah. I think they could play baseball and have ice cream. Well, that's pretty good, right? That's not bad. Not a bad trade-off. Well, maybe, yeah, maybe it was. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not out there cutting rugs anyway, so <laughs> I'm not going to miss it. <laughs> but, right. but yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a very strange um, community, especially when he was hiring locals and asking them to live a completely different life. Yeah, and it wasn't long after this thing was built that it was the idea was given up. I mean, they decided right. that it wasn't going to work. But here, the, the, the really strange part is that people stayed. People stayed for a long, long time. 
thinking that something was really going to happen. It was going to turn around, that they were going to reopen this place. It was going to, uh, you know, the sawmill was going to reopen, the, the rubber factory was going to open again, and they were going to produce tires for, or at least the raw rubber, to send to Ford for his, his vehicle. So a really strange thing. It's almost, it's a ghost town now. So you can uh, you can go down and check it out, but again, it's in the Amazon rainforest, so not a lot of people make it there. You can the good thing about uh, you know being able to search on Google is that um, you can find photos of this. You don't have to make the trip down there to see it, but I would love to see it in person someday. I really, oh, absolutely, I really would. It's a long boat ride, I think. You know, once you land at the nearest airport, but right. um, I would still love to make that trip and see what's going on in Fordlandia. It's it's an interesting place. I think it would be absolutely worth it. Mm-hmm. We are going to conclude this list, but not necessarily today's show, with one last stop, and that is Italy. Yeah, that was a big surprise to me. I just figured that Detroit was going to be number one. I thought that Packard factory was going to be number one, but this is one that I had forgotten about. This is the Bugatti factory mm-hmm. in Italy. Now, in the town, okay, I'll try the town pronunciation here, and you tell me how I do, okay? Okay. Campogliano. That's pretty good. I'm going to try to Campogliano. Close enough. I yeah. We I, might have got it with one of those two. You know, at some point, man, we're just gonna have to break down and learn Italian. <laughs> this is where the famed EB one ten was built. And a lot of people now maybe okay, you know what, I'm gonna take that back. Not a lot of people. Very few people have probably seen this factory because I do recall somewhere, and I, I even read it somewhere, I didn't make a note here today, but I saw this factory in a magazine a long, long time ago. And it had a lot of photos of unfinished product just kind of left on the line. We're talking about Bugattis that were partially finished, parts of cars, machinery, um, offices that looked like they were just abandoned at a moment's notice, really. You know, there were things like cigarettes laying on, on desktops. Yeah. Um, really, really strange. I've seen these, I saw these photos in a magazine and one of the commenters here on Jalopnik also had a link to a few photos from that magazine. And I neglected to write down the name of where it came from and all that, but you'll, you can find it pretty easy if you just check out this list. Um, but this factory is really fascinating. Now they again built that EB110 there, and the crazy thing is like how the how the factory was left initially. It was almost like they had they did have notice, but it's almost again like a, like the case with the Alfa Romeo factory where people just seemed to just leave things, just left it where it was and walked out the door. Mm-hmm. I'm really, really strange. There were things in this in this Bugatti factory, like um, you know, near the lunchroom, you know, the cafeteria. They had the the daily specials still written on a whiteboard outside of the the the, uh, um, the cafeteria with the days, you know, like soup and sandwich or whatever it was for whatever price. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, also, still, I'm hungry. It was still there. There was a there was a um, a big viewing area that had. Um, you know, a, a fully built car, what looked like a fully built car, it was probably incomplete, but it had that and a bunch of folding chairs uh, set up as if they were going to give a press conference. Yeah. Um, there were unfinished product, there was unfinished product on the line. Uh, as I said, there were just stacks of computers everywhere. We're talking about the old uh, type with, you know, the big monitors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those were lining the walls in one room. It was just a, it was a really, really strange situation. Papers everywhere. Um, you know, some of them look like they were last minute papers, like, you know, like things that could have maybe saved this factory. Um, you know, the last minute documents that were going back and forth being faxed between, you know, the, the factory and lawyers. Mm-hmm. Uh, just really, really fascinating stuff was left behind. And again, it's just a strange thing to think about, but there were even marks on the floor for a product that they never built. Yeah. Yeah, there was supposed to be another model of the EB-110 that was called the EB-112 that they never built there. Uh, but there were, they were laying out tape marks on the floor to say this is where we're going to build them. And, mm-hmm. you know, suddenly, you know, the, the rug was yanked out from underneath their feet. 
And, of course, Bugatti continues today. It's just not in Italy. Yeah. They're not in that plant. Yeah, this weird plant is still left behind, and it's still – I think it's still empty today. So we were talking about this off air. We didn't want this to be a huge downer podcast. Uh, so I found something that I thought was an interesting piece of news, What's at least for uh, U.S. factories. Well, it turns out that empty factories and warehouses have become objects of like high regard and high demand now. People want these structures. And this is a trend that we are seeing in the, on both sides of the coast here and all across. Like it makes sense in places that are, I, w- I want to say real estate poor where like land is at a higher premium, it makes sense that in like England or London, especially people would want to reuse every building they can. Well, sure. You're living in one now and we're podcasting from one right now. Right. And I think this trend is spreading as more and more people live in cities, more and more of these old buildings are going to be revitalized rather than torn down. Yeah. They're prime real estate. They're very, I mean, they're extremely solid built, uh, you know, pieces of property. So, and they often have features that, uh, you know, uh, I guess maybe property managers would really appreciate, you know, like things like extremely heavy-duty freight elevators like our building has. Right. I'm I'm not going to say that you could, but you might be able to, to, you know, lift a car in those things. They're enormous. Dude, let's try it. Yeah, maybe maybe we should try it. But, uh, but, uh, you know, for – there's no doubt that they were to lift heavy appliances and machinery and things like that. So I would guess that you could lift a car in those things. Um, A lot of – a lot of – Property managers find some of these attributes very valuable. Again, you know, they're in prime locations. They've got a lot of windows, so you've yep. you got great views of the city. Um, you know, it's, it's again, it's, it seems like it's a, a smart use of the space rather than tearing down the old stuff, reuse what's already there. So uh, don't let these abandoned factories get you down because, ladies and gentlemen, the odds are that they will not be abandoned for long. Yeah, or they'll be released by, like, uh, you know, at least again, I should say, yeah. by, um, you know, the Board and Milk Company or um, <laughs> the uh, American Natural History Museum will use it for storage. Or a doll tycoon. Yeah, you'll see, I mean, there's always a use for <laughs> stuff like this, right? People need space yeah. for something all the time. So, uh, yeah, again... All these factories probably could be put to use. Some are in, like the Packard factory. I think it's too far gone at this point. Right. Yeah, that might be that might be a different case. But again, check out the news stories around that place. It's it's fascinating. And remember, if you bring a tiger with you to a photo shoot, I think we can agree this is the moral of this episode. <laughs> if you bring a tiger with you anywhere, you got to keep an eye on it, man. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't let it out of the harness or whatever you've got it in. Right. I mean, that's a bad idea. Keep your eye on the tiger. And the guy caught it with a weed whacker and a tarp. Can you believe that? I mean, it's, it's insane. It sounds very MacGyverish. It is. I'd and it's love a, to know the operation. It's there. a big tiger too. It's not like a baby either. So if that's what you're thinking, it's like a baby tiger. Not the case. <laughs> it's not some no, tiny punk tiger. No, check out the video. It's it's a big scary tiger. And so concludes our episode for today as Scott and I uh, go off to hit the road, or I think first I'm going to be watching a lot of weird stuff about Packard on YouTube. Uh, in the meantime, we would like to hear from you about the industry surrounding your neck of the global woods. Do you have any big, uh, creepy abandoned factories? Do you have any cool urban exploration stories? Uh, let us know. We'd like to share them with your fellow listeners, and we will... 
not condone anything illegal, but we will also protect your identity if necessary. In the meantime, you can check out every episode Scott and I have ever done. I would specifically recommend the one on Fordlandia uh, on our website, carstuffshow.com. Uh, check in with us on Twitter and Facebook to see some of the stories that, for one reason or another, might not make it to the air. Don't forget DeLorean story as well. Oh, and don't forget, yeah, DeLorean story as well. And... If you have an idea for a topic we should cover in the future, we'd love to hear it. You can write to us directly. We are carstuff at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.